The world can be a scary place. And much of the news seems geared to add to that and to make us afraid. We are continually bombarded with stories telling us about potential problems with the economy, the threats of global warfare, random acts of violence. Even the presidential campaign is largely fear-driven. Team Hillary consistently warns us about how terrible the world would be under President Trump. Team Trump returns the favor by consistently warning us about how terrible the world would be under President Hillary. All of these things produce a recipe that leaves us feeling uncertain and afraid. How are things going to turn out? Are we going to head into another depression? Will terrorism strike close to my home? Am I safe in my own community? And these things can lead us to feeling overwhelmed with fear. And being overwhelmed with fear leads us to make judgments and decisions based on fear. And I would say there's a pretty good chance that even if we feel, even if we don't feel overwhelmed by fear, there are probably times where the things going on in the world that leave us feeling afraid and uncertain. Because again, let's face it, this is at times a scary old world that we're living in. I don't think anyone likes to live in fear, but sometimes the possibility of what might happen, it dominates our thoughts and the result is fear. How do we overcome fear? How do we keep from letting thoughts of what might happen dominate our thoughts and making us afraid? How do we keep from letting fears determine how we act and who we are and and what we do? That's what the series we're starting today is about. I'm praying that the, the coming weeks that God will work through His Word, to transform us into courageous Christians that choose to live by faith and not by fear. But interestingly enough, we are starting our series by learning about the kind of fear that we should have. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 12, verse 4 is where we're starting at. That's page 794 if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Lady, no one said you could leave. Luke 12 and 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And one of them and not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. Therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Title of the message this morning is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Our father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we are thankful for an opportunity to gather and to study your word. We're thankful, Lord, for your presence and your spirit. We're thankful, Lord, for Jesus who has saved us. We are thankful, God, for the hope that we have because of him. Lord, there is much that we are thankful for in our lives. But, God, we do live in a world that at times can be scary. And, Lord, it does seem that that much of what happens, or at least what's reported, is intended to cause us to be afraid. Your word tells us that you have not given us a spirit of fear. So the fear that we feel 
It's not from you. The fear that we feel is not the way you'd have us to live. So today, as we study about the kind of fear that we should have, help us to understand how important this is. Help us, Father, to choose faith over fear. Help us, Lord, that we would not be a fear-driven people in our actions, in our reactions, in our priorities, in our attitudes. But God, let our faith in You, Your greatness, Your goodness, let that guide who we are and how we are in every aspect of our lives. Fill me today with Your Holy Spirit and give me the Give me clarity of thought as I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. Work in our hearts and strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us, and change us. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In a lot of ways, I think that this section is the key section for the chapter, the part that I read. And we're just going to survey, and you can read it later, but in verses 8 through 12, and then in verses 49 through 53, Jesus explains that there will come a time when living Him will not be acceptable. It will be so unacceptable that those who confess Jesus as Lord will, will suffer for that confession. Despite the fact they will suffer for that confession, they must not back up, let up, or shut up about Jesus being Lord. In verses 13 through 21, we're told that as followers of Jesus, we must live differently than the rest of the world. Our priorities and our values must be different. In verses 22 through 30, we are told to ensure that faith, not fear, is the driving force in our lives. In verses 31 through 40, we're told to live for a kingdom that is not of this world, but instead the kingdom of God. Verses 41 through 48 and 54 through 59, we are told to live in light of certain accountability before Almighty God. Now, to live out what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 12 requires us to live differently than the world around us lives. It requires us to adjust our values and our priorities and our attitudes and our actions and our reactions until they are in line with kingdom values and kingdom priorities. It requires us to live by faith. And not by fear. And the question is, why would we do that? How do we do that? And the answer is found in verses 4 and 5. And I say to you, my friends, not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after have no more that they can do. But I show you whom to be, who you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Right? The central truth of, of this message, and, and really for the whole Series. So if I fear God, I need not fear anything else. If I fear God, I need not fear anything else. Now, the idea of fearing God is it probably sounds odd to many of us because we don't tend to think in that way. But despite the fact that we don't think in that way, the fear of the Lord is a common theme in Scripture. Just a a little bit of what it says. In Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalms, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Deuteronomy, the fear of the Lord is frequently given as a reason to serve God, obey God, worship God, and God alone. Peter tells us that knowing that God judges all people without partiality, we are to live our lives on earth in fear. The book of Philippians tells us we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that knowing the terror of the Lord, 
It's a part of what motivated him doing the hard work of persuading people about Jesus. And that small sampling shows that the fear of the Lord is a common and an important theme in both the Old and the New Testament. Despite the, the commonness of this theme, it is largely ignored or misunderstood in our modern world. And I think this is a, a massive hindrance for the church today. I think one of the reasons it's hard, it's misunderstood or it's not taught is because it is hard to understand. What does it mean to fear the Lord? At times I've had people explain that it means to respect God. To live in reverence or awe of God. And, and I think that's partially true. But I think it falls short of the true meaning. Because, I mean, let's just think for a second. When we talk about God, who we're talking about. We're talking about a being of unlimited power. But who speaks and worlds come into existence. Who has the power to do Anything he wants, and there is no one or nothing in, in all of the universe that can stop him. If God determines to do a thing, there, there is no opposing force that can prevent his will from being done. And this God that is almighty and all-powerful is also all-knowing. He knows everything about everything. He knows the future as well as the past. In a personal level, he knows the thoughts that we think, but we never say. He knows the motives behind the actions that we take. Even if we tell people one thing, but do it for another, God knows the truth about us. This same God is completely, perfectly holy. There's nothing sinful or wrong or deceitful, or untrue, or impure about Him at all. He is so holy, the Bible says we could not even behold Him in all of His glory. He is so holy that the angels in heaven cover their eyes in His presence. He is so pure that He has no choice but to punish sin. And He is just. He is 100% completely just. 100% of the time. He will always ensure that every sin receives its just punishment. No one escapes. No one gets by. No one is the exception to the rule. And every person that has ever lived or ever will live will stand before this God in judgment. Now that's a, that's a big picture of a great God. But what makes that picture even larger possibly is how we realize ourselves in light of that. We are weak. We, we can't even add one cubit to our stature. Jesus, Jesus said. We can't control what will happen tomorrow, much less what will happen in the future. Our perceptions about how things have happened are often skewed by our biases and our, our feelings of betrayal. 
or the way or the fact that we feel like we were the victim. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know our hearts and they are dark at times and they are wrong at times. We are poor. We are needy. We are frail. We are sinful. And yet we will stand before the great and the awesome God of the Bible and give an account for our lives. I think in light of who God is and in light of who we are, fear, legitimate fear, is a rational response. And I think it's part of the intended meaning. The Bible gives us pictures of people who saw God, saw a measure of His glory. What did Moses do when he saw the burning bush and realized it was God? See, like my buddy from upstairs, or does the Bible say he was afraid? He was afraid. What happened when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up? He said, I am undone because I am a sinful person. Even John the Revelator, when he saw Jesus in the book of Revelation and His glory, he fell down as dead and Jesus had to say to him, do not be afraid. People who saw the great and the awesome God of the Bible, fear was a legitimate and appropriate response that they had. However, does that mean that we... We are to have a terrible dread of a capricious God that will smite us at any moment for anything. Well, obviously, that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible either. So how do we balance this? What does it mean to to fear the Lord? I think when we look at verses four through seven. Say this to you, my friends, not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear, fear him who after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you. Fear him, but notice the rest. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? Not one of them is forgotten before God. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The best way I can understand the, the fear of the Lord is like this. It is a recognition of God's greatness and power that has been tempered by an understanding of His mercy and love. There must be an understanding of the greatness and the power, the holiness and the majesty of God. Any view of God we have that has him less than perfectly holy, completely majestic, awesome in power. It is a flawed view. It is an idolatrous view of God. But the fear that that view of God produces, it is transformed into A holy reverence, a reverent awe, a loving devotion when we recognize His great love and His great mercy toward us. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand in this passage. Fear God for His greatness and His certain judgment, but understand His love and His concern over you at the same time. In this passage, it shows us two results the fear of the Lord should have in our lives. First is that the fear of the Lord strengthens my devotion. It 
Jesus said that we should not fear man who can only kill us. Who can't do anything more after that. Rather, we should fear the sovereign God who can not only kill our bodies, but cast us into hell for all of eternity. The fear of man, Proverbs says, is a snare. It will keep us from doing the will of God. When we fear man, we become frightened and we give up on doing what we know God would have us to do. The fear of the Lord, it frees us from the fear of man and it frees us to do God's will. The fear of the Lord recognizes that God is infinitely greater than man and it compels us to do his will no matter what. This is part of the point that Jesus is making in verses 8 through 12 of this chapter. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But to him who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer. What you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus is saying that there is going to be a time when confessing him as Lord. It's not going to be popular. It could cost us personally. But in that time, what we are to do is to continue to confess him anyway. And we do that because we know that he is is greater. He is better than anything this world has to offer. It's easy to be committed to the Lord and everything in our lives is going as it should. It's easy to be committed to the Lord when we're prosperous. My life is easy and everybody generally accepts that serving God is a decent or a good thing. But what happens when the world shifts? What happens when the spirit of the age is no longer accepting of Christianity? Of Jesus being the only way, of the Bible being the word of God, of God's standards of holiness and righteousness being acceptable. and I mean, just acceptable to hold, much less to go out and proclaim. What do we do? How we respond in that day says a lot about our view of God. If I have a a view of God as great and awesome, and my fear of the Lord is as it should be, then it will strengthen my devotion to go and do God's will regardless of how man may respond. There's some good biblical examples to this in Scripture. One is in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, he builds this great big golden idol. He sends a decree out through the land. And he says, the sound of the music, everybody in the land has to bow down and worship this God that I have built. So the decree goes out through the land and the music plays and everybody falls down in worship except for three people. Who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't do it. What makes it worse is that they are not natural to the land. They're foreigners. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered their homeland. He has taken them prisoner and he has brought them into the land. And makes it, what makes it even worse than that is... Despite the fact that they are foreigners, Nebuchadnezzar has promoted them in the country. They are leaders in the nation. Here they are, leaders in the nation, and they are not doing the will of the king. And so people tell on them. 
And they go and they explain. You've made this command, O king. These three people, Hebrews, that you promoted. They're not doing what you say. The Bible says that, that Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage over this. And he brings them before him. And he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. Bow before my idols. And if you do, all is forgiven. But if you don't, I'm going to toss you into the burning, fiery furnace. And what God is there that will deliver you from my hand? And I love their response. That's the case. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They're confident in God's power. God can absolutely deliver them from the burning, fiery furnace if he chooses to. But even if God lets them die, they will not bow before the king's golden idols. They will not worship his images. Now, one of the things that stands out to me in this It's how easily it would have been for them to fake it. Because all the king required was that they bow down. I mean, who who really knows what they're doing when they're bowing down? Maybe they're praying to the God of heaven. Maybe they're taking a nap. Maybe, I don't know, who knows what they could do. Any number of things while they're bowing down. No one's going to be listening to make sure they're genuinely praying to Nebuchadnezzar's God. But they refused to even fake it. They refused to give the appearance that they would serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods because they knew that their God was greater than Nebuchadnezzar's God. Their fear of the Lord, it strengthened their devotion to God and they chose not to do the will of the king even though it might possibly cost them their lives. Had they faked it, they wouldn't have been tossed into the furnace. They wouldn't have had to worship the idol. They, they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble. But instead they did what God wanted them to do. And they demonstrated that they feared God and not man. And what they did in that situation. I mean, God delivered them and they lived, if you know the story. And you can say, well, that's great. They did it. But, I mean, should they have? What should we do, given a similar situation? Well, the Bible tells us what we should do. Church, Smyrna, Revelation 2. Jesus writes a letter and he says, These things says the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. I know your works, tribulations, and your poverty, but you are rich. You know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Now, let me stop there and explain what's going on. The church at Smyrna is suffering because of their faith in Jesus. Everything that's going on, their tribulation and their poverty, is all because of their faith in Jesus. By tribulation, it, it literally carries with the idea 
of being at the end of their rope. I mean, they were they were suffering terribly. Poverty doesn't mean that they couldn't afford the iPhone seven and a half that was about to come out. It means that they they had nothing. But they didn't have the money to provide for their daily necessities. They didn't have the money to provide for their daily necessities because the government had stolen it from them. Because people had taken it from them and the government had turned a blind eye. They were literally starving to death. Their families were starving to death. And all of this was happening because they were devoted to Jesus. See, one of the things that the Roman government did was they had an official religion. And it was emperor worship. Every Roman was expected to worship the emperor. Now, not the emperor alone. You could worship the emperor plus Zeus or the emperor plus anybody you wanted to. But you had to worship the emperor and you had to prove it. Every so often, you had to go to a temple of Caesar. You had to take a pinch of incense. You had to put it on the fire as worship. And you had to pronounce Caesar is Lord. Doing that was a test of faithfulness. It was a test of patriotism. To refuse to worship Caesar in that way, it was considered treason. And a person who did that almost lost all of their rights in the Roman Empire. And the Christians at Smyrna and in other places, they could not do that. Because Jesus is Lord. No one else. No one else deserved that title. And when they refused, they lost their rights. When they refused, they were branded as traitors. When they refused, they were made the enemies of the state, almost. And all of this was because of it. And again, all they had to do, all they had to do, see, they didn't have to worship Caesar alone. And they didn't really have to worship Caesar. All they actually had to do was take a pinch of incense, toss it on the fire, say, Caesar is Lord. Then they could go about their merry way, preaching the gospel and worshiping Jesus without any problems and without any complications. They didn't have to mean it. Caesar didn't care that they meant it. All he cared was that they submitted to his rules. They acknowledged his lordship. And the church could not Would not do it. Not even in pretense. And so their lives were bad. But notice what Jesus says. As bad as it was suffering, do not fear the things which you're about to suffer. You know what that means? It's about to get worse. As bad as it is. It's not as bad as it could be. Things are about to get even worse for you, O Smyrna people. But don't be afraid. Some of you are about to be thrown into prison. You're going to be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. It's going to be a long, hard road. And it's coming for you. At this point, what was Jesus's words to them? What were they supposed to do? Back off. Let up. Pretend. To burn the incense because, I mean, you've got to provide for your family. Go along to get along. Don't be so offensive. Just try to blend in with your neighbors. No. Be faithful unto death. Jesus said if the choice is between bowing to their idols 
or worshiping their false gods or dying, you die. You die in faithfulness to me. And from what I understand, that's exactly what the people in Smyrna did. Why would Jesus say that? What a, what a high standard to live by. And it's easy to say, well, that was Smyrna all those years ago. Something like that would, would never happen today. But I wonder if that's really the case. I wonder if in the world we're living in today, if something like that would never be the case in America. Is it possible that the America we're moving into in the future is an America that will say, if you don't accept all religions as equal, you lose your right to assemble? Is it possible that the America we're moving into in the future is an America that will say if you if you discriminate against a certain lifestyle is sinful. You may go to jail and you certainly lose your right to assemble. Is it possible the America we're moving into that those that work in the public sector, schools, for cities, for governments will be asked Do you accept this? Do you believe this? And if you answer a certain way, you may lose your job. Is it possible we're heading in that direction? Absolutely, it's possible we're heading in that direction. If the book of Revelation is to be believed, the world is heading in that direction. So we will all eventually get there. So the question is, what will we do when that day comes? What will we do when the government passes a law that says if you condemn a certain lifestyle as sinful, you can't work for the city anymore? What will we do? What will we do when they say you can't have a a public job? You can't be a teacher. You can't work for any sort of government thing. If you don't accept all religions and all lifestyles, what what will we do? It would be easy to just lie because, I mean, we don't have to... It's not requiring us to show it. Just check the box. All religions lead to God. Or no religion leads to God. Whatever. All lifestyles are okay so long as the person is happy. And everybody's consensual. After all, I've got to to provide for my family. I, I I have to have a job. I have to do this. That's the temptation. That's the standard. The standard is be faithful to death. And if we lose our jobs, we lose our jobs. If we lose our lives, we lose our lives. And what we do in that day, in that time, it absolutely demonstrates what our view of God is. It absolutely demonstrates whether we fear man or whether we fear God. Because God has spoken. He's given us the standard, what we're supposed to do in that day. And if I fear God more than I fear man, that is what I will do. But if I fear what man can do more than I fear what God will do, then I will go along to get along. I will check my box. I will burn my incense and I will say, Caesar is Lord. 
fear the Lord, the understanding of who He is, His greatness, His majesty, His glory, His sure judgment. It will strengthen our devotion to Jesus so that we will make the same decision the three Hebrew boys made. But if not, we will not bow before your idols. We will make the decision the Christians in Smyrna made and we will be faithful unto death. And again, this can sound so far-fetched. But this has happened often in Christian history. This happens in places around the world at this very moment. To think that it would never happen here. It's a fool's dream. We'd best get our ideas of who God is and what God's like. Who's most important, who we'll fear most, lined out right now. Because if I fear God, then it doesn't matter what man can do. Because in the end, all they can do is send me to be with Jesus. But if I fear man, I will compromise. I will burn my incense. I will worship their false gods. And in the end, I will. As Jesus said, he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What are the odds that means that they get to go to heaven? I would say pretty slim. Those who burn the incense, those who bow before the idols, they have very little hope that heaven will be their home. Fear of the Lord strengthens my devotion to Jesus. And secondly, the fear of the Lord gives me peace. Now, everything we've talked about and all of this being devoted to Jesus, it sounds really harsh. I mean, be faithful unto death, lose your life, your job, your home, whatever, but be faithful to Jesus. That would seem unreasonable if it wasn't for what we see in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. The idea is what man can do. Few are more valuable than many sparrows. When I first studied this, that seemed out of place. Fear God who can send you to hell. But hey, think about the sparrows. I thought, I don't understand it. But as I thought about it, I realized this is actually a perfect place for this. The overarching thought in these verses is that God, that if God knows and cares about something as insignificant as a sparrow, how much more does he know about and care about those who have surrendered their lives to him? Knowing that God cares for us, that God is aware of what's going on in our lives, it gives us great peace, even in the midst of the hardships. I mean, the folks at Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. There's a promise of something better. What they lose is nothing compared to what they gain. The fear of the Lord gives us peace that we say, you know, if I go through this now because of my faith and my devotion to Jesus, it will be worth it at some point. And so there is, there is peace regardless of the circumstances or situation. That's what Jesus is 
partly talking about in verses 22 through 31. He says, therefore, I say to you. Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barns, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do that which is least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of them. If then God so clothes the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you should eat, what you should drink, or have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. Jesus is saying just, Basically, just trust God. If you believe he is as great as the Bible says he is, and he cares about you like the Bible says he does, that frees us from worry, and it frees us to do what it says in verse 31, but seek the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Knowing that that God is great, and awesome and can do anything that he wants to do, knowing that God cares for me, knowing that God will take care of me in one way or another, having that fear of the Lord, it gives me peace in the midst of a difficult situation. It gives me peace in the midst of a hostile culture. It keeps me from fearing and worrying about all of the the potential things that, that could happen. I read something once, and I wish I had thought of it to put it in my sermon. So this is just extra time we're here. Uh, But it said that most of the time we worry about all these things. And most of the things we worry about never come to pass. And instead of, and and we worry about all of this stuff. Let Let me ask you a question. Are you going to be the one that determines who's the president? Are you going to be the one that stops terrorism in Gaiman? Are you going to be the one that makes the economy from crashing? Are you going to be the one that can keep random acts of violence from happening in in our community? No. No, we can't do anything about any of that stuff. I mean, we can cast our vote. We can do what we can to protect ourselves. We can invest wisely. We can say we can do all that we can. But in the end, what's going to happen is going to happen. And we're just a part of the situation. And yet, in our lives, there there are all of these things that we can do something about. There are issues that we are personally dealing with, and we are not worrying about things we can actually do something about. You know, I can't worry. I can't fix what the government's going to do. But I can train up my children the way they should go. I can't control whether the world is moral or immoral, but I can make sure that I live a holy life for Jesus. And what we tend to do is we focus on all of this stuff we can't control, we can't fix. We we are just small cogs in the wheel of life. And we ignore all of the stuff 
we can do something about. And that's because we are a fear-driven people. What do you spend your life worrying about? Are you, do you stay up at night because of who the president's going to be? Do you lose sleep over the possibility of terrorism in our community? Do, do you hoard your, your wealth and your resources and refuse to give and refuse to be generous because the stock market could tank? Nothing you can do about any of that. But are you faithful to live for Jesus? Are you praying and reading your Bible? Are you living a holy life? Are you arranging your priorities around God's truth? We worry about all the things we can't control and we do it because our view of the Lord is not right. We are more afraid of man than we are of God. Fear of man will steal our peace and will leave us constantly worrying, constantly fretting, constantly upset. Fear of the Lord, it gives us a great sense of peace because my God is in control. My God will take care of me. And I am, I am free to seek first His kingdom and, as Matthew says, His righteousness. To make that the priority in our lives. And all of that was just kind of extra. Three truths we learn from verses 6 and 7. First is that God is omniscient. God knows everything. But not, not a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing about it. The very hairs of our head are all numbered. There are going to be all kinds of things that are going to come up in our life this week, this month, and this year that we had no idea was coming. No matter how well we plan, we are going to be caught off guard by things. Good things and bad things and things in between. But God is not caught off guard. God knows the outcome of the election. God knows what the economy is going to do. God knows where the next place ISIS is going to strike. God knows all of it. And he was prepared for it all to happen. Knowing that God knows should give us peace in the midst of a troubling world. Secondly, God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Not a sparrow falls from the sky. God is not in control of the situation. Circumstances that are going to catch us off guard this year, they're often going to be out of our control. We're going to feel at a loss for power. We're going to feel afraid because we can't fix it. But our God is always in control of the situation. He makes nations to rise and to fall. He makes the sun to rise and to set. Nothing that happens is ever out of His control. When He determines something needs to happen, it will. When He determines it needs to stop, it will. And through it all, God is always at work. God is never passive in anything that goes on in this world. God is never passive in anything that goes on in our lives. There are we have all gone through times that were beyond our control. We've gone through times where we felt like everything was just unraveling around us. But in that time, God was there and God was at work. 
Paul says, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Familiar verse. But the key truth I want you to understand from that verse is that God is never passive about anything that happens in our lives. Our Sunday school class, we've been looking at Joseph and how he went from the favored son of his father to a kid pushed in a pit, to sold into slavery, to prominence over Egypt. And can you imagine the, the loss of control he must have felt when his brothers pushed him into a pit and sold him into slavery? The loss of control when Potiphar's wife uh, accused him of rape when he had, or attempted rape and he had done nothing wrong. The loss of control of being a slave and a prisoner all at the same time. And yet in all of that, God was at work. God was not passively watching, going, oh, I didn't see that coming. Oh, no. Terrible. In all of that, God was working to bring Joseph to such a spot that he would be in charge of Egypt so that when the famine came, the nation of Israel could come in. And there in this famine, they could be provided for, they could grow and they could prosper. God was working his will in that situation. And you and I, we could look over our lives. And everything in our life that has happened has happened to help us be who God wants us to be. There were things that needed to be changed, issues that needed to be addressed. And God either sent or allowed things to come into our lives to shape our character, our morality, our priorities, and our values. And He's doing this so that we can be the people He wants us to be. God is at work in our lives no matter what happens in the future, no matter what goes on. God is at work in knowing the greatness, the sovereignty, the majesty of God. It allows us to have peace in the midst of a confusing situation, in the midst of a situation that seems out of our control. And then the final truth to see in this is that God loves and cares for us. If God cares for the sparrows... How much more does he care for us? God cares about every hardship we suffer, everything that we endure. God cared about the people in Smyrna. He wasn't just saying, be faithful unto death because he thought that was a good idea and that sounded cool. He, he cared for what they endured. It mattered to him that they were suffering. When Jesus called the Apostle Paul to salvation... He asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? And it was the church that Paul was persecuting. It was the Christians that Paul was hurting. And yet Jesus, it was as though Jesus endured it right along with his church. He endures what we endure. He feels what we feel. He is with us through all that we endure and all that we go through and all that may come to pass. He is always there. So we can always have peace, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the economy, regardless of the election, regardless of ISIS. We can have peace because our God is greater than all the things that this world makes us afraid of. If we fear God, we don't have to fear anything else. If we fear God, we can be confident and secure devoted, 
Seek first His kingdom with complete peace. I started with this passage because I believe it's foundational to living by faith and not by fear. We have to understand that either our fear of God will conquer our fear of man, or our fear of man will conquer our fear of God. And in the end, they are both only seen in actions and not in words. How we react to the things that come up in the coming days and weeks and months, they demonstrate what we fear most. If we run around like Chicken Little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. We are far more afraid of man than we are of God. If, on the other hand, we are confident, we are devoted, we stay the course of seeking God's will above all else, and we fear God more than we fear man. And I just want to end with asking you, as your life is right now, what does it demonstrate you fear most? Does it demonstrate a fear of man that hinders your devotion and steals your peace? Or does it demonstrate a fear of God that strengthens your devotion and gives you a peace that passes all understanding? I can't answer that for you. In this time of response, I must all to stand.